And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers will make sure that you have one so that you can follow along with us in our study tonight. Philippians chapter 2. When Jesus was walking with his disciples on the coast of Caesarea, he said to them that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Now that is comforting because the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. But it's also a little bit disconcerting because the implication is that there's going to be a constant attempt. That Satan is going to constantly be seeking to derail and divert and destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Now there are many devices that the enemy will seek to employ in order to do this. And by far the most prominent and productive is division that's caused by intrapersonal conflicts within the church. There's an underlying theme that goes throughout the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to this church, wherein Paul consistently encourages and implores the Christians there at the city of Philippi to maintain a spirit of love and unity and to be on guard against Satan's attempt to divide them as a church body. Now, as you read through the epistle and you see, you know, hear Paul's heartbeat in chapter 1, verse 27, he tells them there that they're to mind the same thing. In chapter 2, verse 2, he tells them that they're to be of the same mind, of one mind and of one accord. In chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul again says to them there that they're to mind the same thing. And and chapter by chapter, this theme keeps coming up, and it finds its culmination in chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul directly confronts these two women, Euodius and Syntyche who apparently were at odds over something. There was an argument. There was a conflict between these two women in the church. And Paul, you know, catches wind of this issue. And apparently it had gone to the next level. Where people had now begun to choose sides. To see the point of view of one or the other. And they've begun to form opinions and, and make plans and kind of gather people you know, on there. And lines are being drawn in the sand. And as Paul hears word of this from a Roman prison, he feels it necessary to call these two people out by name and to address this issue because there is a danger of the church in Philippi either being literally divided, a split taking place, wherein the church in Philippi will become the churches in Philippi because they're not able to reconcile and there'll be a split. Or, perhaps even worse than that, there wouldn't be a split wherein the two churches or one church would become two churches, but rather the issue would just kind of go under the radar. It wouldn't result in necessarily a dividing of the congregation. But 
it would become a conflict where, well, we're not going to talk about this out in the open anymore, but you know what we'll be talking about when we're behind closed doors. You know what the topic of discussion is going to be when we're at the home Bible groups or in the prayer meetings or while we're on the telephone or while we're interacting with each other in a one-on-one setting. That this thing now is going to go under the radar and it is going to become the central issue or at least a central issue there in the church. And Paul knows as he writes this letter and as he considers this church and realizes what's at stake here, that if that happens, that the presence of God's Holy Spirit there amongst that congregation will become shrouded and the conflict will become the chief issue within the church. And what that looks like is that from now on, as soon as that conflict takes center stage, now when someone new comes in the church, or perhaps when new families or new faces show up in the general meeting, no longer is the chief concern, the main desire to find out where are they at in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Have they been blood-bought, saved and sealed by God's Spirit? Are they in? Do they have eternal life? That's no longer what's in the forefront of the Philippians' mind if this conflict takes center stage. Now it's whose side are they going to be on? Once we get them in and they become a part of this church, how can we win them to our opinion in the division that that we're dealing with here in this church? Whose side are they on? And this conflict or conflicts, perhaps, that were taking place there in the church are the motivation behind what Paul writes now in chapter 2 of Philippians. And he begins in the first verse in a very practical way by just bringing to their attention what's at stake. If they allow this to go through and this becomes the course that their church is going to carry on, What is going to be the outcome? What's at stake? He tells them at the very beginning here, verse 1. He says four things. He says, if there, and and he means if there is going to be, if there is to be in your midst, therefore, any consolation in Christ. If, number two, any comfort of love. If, number three, any fellowship of the Spirit. And if, number four, any bowels and mercies or affections and mercies. If you're going to have these four things, these four things are at stake. What are they? He says, first of all, any consolation in Christ. The word consolation in the Greek language, it's the word paraklesis. And what it literally means, the translation of the word, is a drawing near or a coming alongside of. In other places in the New Testament, this same word is translated helper or comforter. And he links this paraclesis, this one who's going to draw near and come alongside, he links it directly to Christ. He says, if there's going to be any consolation in Christ, that means, in other words, if you are going to experience the presence of Christ in your church. The first thing that's at stake if conflict becomes the issue is that you will sacrifice the presence of Christ in your church. The help 
the comfort, the power that comes from having Jesus Christ present in your midst, you are at risk of losing it if you continue on this course. Second of all, he says, if any comfort of love. The word comfort in the Greek means comfort. Deep, I know. I'm I'm a language man, you know. But what he's saying is that the comfort or the help that comes from genuine and unconditional love in your midst. One of the most powerful things in all of the universe is unconditional love. And it's what the Holy Spirit supplies and provides as he moves in the group of God's people, moves in their midst. And Paul says if you want to continue to experience the comfort that comes from the love of God shed abroad in your hearts by the Spirit of God, beware. Number three, he says, if any fellowship of the Spirit, the Greek word for fellowship, it's the word koinonia. And the word means communion or partnership or community. And what he's speaking of is the feeling and the bond that we have when we come together that makes it feel like we're with family. Do you ever experience that when you're around a group of Christians? That you're not just around people that are of like ideology or of similar background or cultural, you know, substance, but rather there's something that goes deeper. There's a bond. There's something that's supernatural, that that there's love. It's supernatural love. It's the fellowship that comes from God's Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is talking about. And he says, be careful. And then number four, he says, if there's to be any bowels and mercies, the word in the Greek means heartfelt depth of affection. Heartfelt depth of affection. And he's speaking of the ability that you would have personally and that others would share as well the ability to sincerely care about the well-being of others. So that you're not just saying, well, how are you? But inwardly you're saying, I just want to be nice and I want to get away and go over here. You know? but, 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 there's, but there's a genuine desire to know how they're doing and see what they need and offer assistance if it's necessary. And to, to really truly possess that, it's something that doesn't come from within us. It comes from the presence and the power of God's Holy Spirit. And what Paul is saying is that if you're going to let conflict, Division, schisms, arguments, interrupt what God is doing in your midst, then you're going to sacrifice the presence of Christ, the comfort that comes from experiencing his love in your fellowship, the affection that comes from being a family, and the sincerity in your care for one another. You're going to lose it. Listen, church. What we possess as Christians and as a church, as Calvary Chapel of the Hudson Valley, is the only thing of any real beauty or real value in all of the world. We have the message of the gospel. I mean, think about everything that is going on in the world, the ugliness that is going on all around us out in the world. And we have the only thing that can make a difference in anybody's life whatsoever, the presence of Jesus Christ and the message of his gospel. It's the only thing that lasts, the only thing that can help, and we have it. I mean, think about what's going on out there. It's ugly. I mean, three suicides that I heard of today. You, you may have heard the name Junior Seau, Pro Bowl quarterback, uh, linebacker, you know, played for the San Diego Chargers for years and then went to the Dolphins and then the Patriots. I mean, just I, I don't even know football, and I know who Junior Seau is. Killed himself. 
two, you know, corrections officers, one up here and one down in, in Westchester, killed themselves just in the past couple of days. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming what's going on out there in the world. People have absolutely no hope. They're stretched to their wit's end. They're trying to make it financially. They're trying to raise a family. They're gripping, trying to hold on to their sanity. And cord by cord, string by string, it's being ripped out of their grasp. I talk to people, you know, and they already have stress in their lives and in their jobs. But yet now they have this thing hanging over them that, oh, there's cutback. And if you want to keep your position, then that's fine and all, but it means you're going to have to also take on this responsibility and this task, and this is going to be added to it for no additional pay because that's the price of what it takes to keep your job in this day and age. And if you don't want it, that's okay because there's 10 people lined up outside that do. And so the load just increases, the stress just increases, the tension increases, the sanity decreases. And here, God has given to us the one thing in all of life that can make a difference, that can help. It's the most beautiful thing in all of the world, this gospel, this message. And if that treasure has to take a back seat or play second fiddle to some petty conflict that's causing a division within the church of Christ, that's just grievous. Well, what color is the carpet going to be? Because I do not do red in church. Do they really have to have the volume of the music? Wait, no, that's meddling. Does there have to be drums in the band? Or do they have to dress that way? And, and, And all of a sudden, these tiny little things come in that have the potential of stripping a church of its power, of its glory, of the thing that God has given to us. The world, they've got us in every area. We can't touch the world when it comes to entertainment. We can't touch them when it comes to amusements and pleasure and dealing with the senses. But do you know what we have that the world can't touch? We have love. Genuine, unconditional, agape love. The world doesn't even know what that means or know that it exists. And yet it's what God promises to flow through us to give to them the one thing that can actually help. And when that power And the preciousness of it has to take a back seat to some conflict that's going on between Christians and a church. The Bible tells us that it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And he won't stay in a church that operates in that fashion. Where the main thing is second to my thing or to your thing. And what happens is that we end up as a church losing the only thing that can actually make us worth anything presence of jesus christ in our midst the comfort that comes from experiencing his love the communion of knowing each other on a deeper level than acquaintance but actually as family and the genuine concern that we're called to have for our brothers and our sisters and it's impossible for a church to be divided over petty squabbles and yet still produce something of substance that can really help. We just become a shell of what we're supposed to be. We promise to produce something, but in reality, we don't possess the thing that we're, we're, we're saying that we have or that we can give away. We're void of it. We're a shell of what we're supposed to be. Well, thus he goes on in verse 2. If you don't want to lose these things, then what do we do? Verse 2, he says, fulfill ye my joy. And then he gives four responses. That first of all, you be like-minded. Second of all, that you would have the same love. Third, that you would be of one accord. 
And fourth, that you would be of one mind. To be like-minded means to be of one purpose. And that your existence as a church, beyond anything else that you might do or that you might be, you have one purpose, and that is to elevate and glorify God and to give forth the gospel of grace. That's your one purpose, like-minded. To have the same love, the unconditional love, and to hold on to it. Don't let it be ripped out of your hands. To be of one accord. And I love that word because inside that word accord, you see the word chord tucked in there. And if you ever hear a guitar perfectly in tune and it just strikes like an E chord where all six strings get hit at once, you know. Or when someone on a piano just has that talent to be able to, you know, move their their hands like it sounds like they have 40 hands all hitting the keys at once. And it it just comes all in perfect harmony and it just does something inside of you that, that you didn't know could be done, you know. That's what he's talking about when he says of one accord that there would be such harmony amongst you, such supernatural love, such purpose in what you're about. That there would be power, that as people come in, something would shake them deep inside like the sound of that harp or that guitar that would say, they'd say, there's something here, there's something so powerful. And then he says, of one mind, and basically he repeats where he began when he said like-minded. And his point is that for you and I, Christian, and for the Philippians here in this time, nothing, 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 is to trump the one reason for which we exist. The presence of Jesus Christ and to bring forth the gospel of salvation to a lost and dying world. Nothing is to come between that. It's interesting, you know, people come to me sometimes, none of you, it's not Wednesday night people, you know, Wednesday night people never come to me, but but they have problems, you know, they have problems with the church. Or they have a problem with one of the other pastors. Or they have a problem with a brother. You know, there's something that's going on. And, 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 and you know, so they'll come to me. And usually once I start, I, I don't really, I listen kind of halfway in case like there's something serious or something. But usually I already know why they're there before they, they even finish, you know, in this whole thing. And, and this, is, this is how I typically respond. And, 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 and let me qualify that by saying this. Is that this is how I respond to myself too. Because I have problems sometimes with the church and with the other pastors and with the brothers and sisters and 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 this is how i deal with it with myself and it's how i deal with it when people come to me as i'll i'll just ask one question i'll say i'll say listen listen this church calvary chapel the hudson valley is this a work of god or is it a work of man because if this if this church is just a work of man then let's just blow this thing up and make it right you know If this is just Bobby Hargrave's church, and all this is Bobby Hargrave's, and and the Bobby Hargrave's ministry, then, then, then it's worth absolutely nothing to me, or to God, or to anybody else, if that's what it is. But listen, if what God is doing here is a work of His Holy Spirit, and His Spirit is moving in our midst, and there's something that's happening, and He's letting us have the privilege of being a light that's set on a hill, then can we... Not worry about the petty things that we don't like about how this is going or how this is running or what that brother or sister is doing or saying for the sake of what Jesus Christ wants to do in our region and use us to do and to accomplish. And it's amazing to think about what what the implications of that is. And it's the point that Paul is making is don't let the petty issues 
the things that don't really matter in the light of eternity, interrupt what God wants to do in your midst. There was a work that was taking place in Philippi. And Paul didn't want to see it upset. He didn't want to see it derailed by stupidity. And it grieves the heart of God when it happens. Well, where do these problems come from? He tells us in verse 3. Where do divisions and, you know, factions and debates and arguments and fightings, where do they come from from within a church? Look at verse 3. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. I really like what the new King James says for this. It just brings it back into normal English for us. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. To be selfish means to put one's self on top. Or to put one's self first. That's what it means to be selfish. To put my agenda and my desires above anything else that is going on. Now, I don't have to expound very much on what selfishness is, do I? Because maybe you're better than me, but I am all too familiar with what selfishness is. I live with selfishness every day. I have to fight it and beat it down because it shows itself all the time. It's just pure self, you know, it's what we are. We're just messed up, you know. Selfish. But then he goes on and he qualifies selfishness. He says, selfish ambition. And selfishness is bad, but, but selfishness by itself is somewhat contained. But once you combine selfishness with ambition, now you have a recipe for disaster. When you have someone who is selfish and they are also ambitious, what that means is that that person will stop at nothing to have their will fulfilled, to have their way done. It's selfish ambition. Now, the other word that Paul uses, the close cousin of selfish conviction or selfish ambition is conceit. And, you know, the, the translation, what that means is just simply pride. It's just pride. That's what that is, is pride. And pride is a dangerous thing in a church, and it's a dangerous thing in the life of an individual Christian. Once a person gets lifted up with pride, they're on a fast track to destruction. It's what happened to Satan. When you read Isaiah chapter 14, he was lifted up with pride and motivated selfishly. He had selfish ambition. And it led to an attempted coup, a civil war in heaven, and it caused him to fall, to be cast into the earth. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, don't ordain someone who's a novice in the faith because they'll fall into the condemnation of the devil being lifted up with pride. And once a person is lifted up with pride, they're on a fast track to destruction. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. There's a couple of things that pride does once pride infects a person. The first thing, and really, pride is like a disease. It's a lot like, you know, some virus or bacteria that you would catch, you know. And the first thing that pride does was it, when it infects someone's heart is that it eliminates or disables that individual's ability to recognize it. Usually the last person to realize that they have a pride problem is the person that has the problem. It's the only disease that everyone else knows that you have it except for you. And that's one of the things that makes pride so dangerous. 
It's hard to recognize. Then, after it's in there, pride always stirs up and ignites contention. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10. And this is a great verse. Maybe you want to write this down if you're a contentious person. It says that contention cometh only by pride. But with the well-advised, or those that obtain counsel from others, is safety. Pride cometh only by, or contention cometh only by pride. And pride always causes and stirs up contention with people. The next thing that pride does is that pride always leads to shame. Proverbs 11 verse 2 says that when pride cometh, then cometh shame. But with the lowly cometh wisdom. And if you've ever been proud, probably this has never happened to you. I have experienced it a little, you know. But any time that you get lifted up with pride, you're not far from experiencing shame. I love the story that Jesus told about the man who was invited to the wedding feast. And he immediately saw an empty seat near the front of the room in an honorable place. And he thought, well, that, that seat must obviously be prepared for me. And so he went and he sat in that seat. And Jesus said that that wasn't his seat. And so he was put to shame in front of the entire house of the wedding, you know, as they said, hey, this seat was prepared for someone else. You're way back there in row 476, you know. And the lesson was Jesus said, take the lowest seat in the house because if you humble yourself and take the low seat, then you'll be exalted. No, no, that's not your seat. Come on, come a little, come a little bit closer to the front. You know? But with pride always comes shame. And it's the, it's the source of contention and strife within a church, whether it's Philippi in Paul's day or whether it's our church in our day. When a person or a group of people is lifted up with pride and motivated with selfish ambition, it's a recipe for disaster amongst a group of people. So what's the solution? He tells us in the second part of verse 3 there. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but rather in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Do you know what lowliness of mind is? Humility. It simply means humility, to be humble. And then he describes for us what humility looks like. What does it mean to be humble? At the end of verse 3, he tells us, first of all, humility's outlook. And there's four qualities of humility that he gives to us here in these next few verses if you're taking notes humility's outlook he tells us there first of all he says in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves now that's challenging isn't it because that's the exact opposite of everything that we've ever known or ever been taught or ever experienced as people have dealt with us. That we're to esteem others, that means to admire them or like them or account that they are better than we are. Now, how many people do that on a regular basis by show of hands? See, what the world tells us to do and, and, and what we do naturally is that we find people's weaknesses and then we prey on them. We magnify their weaknesses in our mind because that's what keeps us sane a lot of times. You know, we'll look at someone, we'll come into an interaction, we'll begin to speak with them, and all of a sudden we'll notice something about them or we'll pick up on something in their character. Wow, that person really likes to talk. You know? Or, you know, that person really... And all of a sudden we see something about them that is completely the opposite of the way we are, 
And we begin to qualify the way they are versus the way we are, and we lift ourselves over above them. That's the way the world is. It's the way self operates. It always has to exalt above someone else, esteem ourselves highly. But what Paul is telling us to do, and it's the very definition of what humility is, is that we're to esteem the strengths in others and not to ignore our own weaknesses. That we're to see their strengths and we're to deal with our weaknesses and we're to allow that to let our eyes be changed and not just see ourselves as better, but to actually look at someone else and say, they're better than me. They're better than me. They're, they're, they're better than me. Their motives, what drives them, their intentions, probably even their gifts and their abilities, and even the things that I think I'm good at, they're probably really better than me. And Paul says that that's humility's outlook. It's the way that it deals with other people. It's the all-around assumption that they are better. He goes on to talk about humility's interests. What is humility interested in when it pertains to other people? Verse 4. He says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, if pride is only concerned with self, and it is, then humility, by default, must make room for others. That's what humility does. Now, there is a constant struggle in the life of every Christian between selfishness and selflessness. You know, and, and, and the amazing thing is like, so almost like you've got these two buckets, these two five-gallon buckets. So that means you have ten gallons of area within you, and five gallons is given for selflessness, and five gallons is given for selfishness. But you only have five gallons of fluid to disperse between the two buckets. And here's the problem. Because, you know, we all have a little selflessness in us. We don't want to have an empty, self, you know, selfless bucket. So we have a little selfless, enough to make people think that we're selfless and so we appear selfless and, and all this kind of thing. But here's the problem with the selfish bucket. The selfish bucket is constantly siphoning off the selfless bucket. It, it constantly wants more. You know, it's never satisfied to just have what it have. Self wants more. And, and since there's only five gallons, it's always taking from the selfless side of us and putting more in itself. We give less and less of ourselves away to others, be it in our prayer or our thoughts or in our giving or whatever, and we give more to ourselves. Do you know what the, the answer for that is? The answer to become selfless is giving. I love the wisdom of God and his instituting of giving in the Bible. Not, I'm not preaching about giving or telling you to give. I'm talking about being a giving or a generous person. Because when we give of ourselves freely with there's no desire to have anything in return, we're giving away our selfishness. We're drawing from that bucket of selfishness and we're pouring it into the selfless bucket. And we're doing what Paul is talking about here when he says that that we're not to look each one to our own interests, but we're to look every man also on the interests of others. To be concerned with and dealing out to the needs that other people have and not just the things that we have. We're to be selfless. That's humility's interest. He goes on in verse 5 and he talks to us about humility's mindset. And this is where it gets real challenging, church. The mindset of someone who is humble, he says, let this mind be in you. Now, pause right there. I know you probably already read the rest of the verse, but pause right there and imagine with me, you don't know what he's going to say next. 
He just says, let this mind be in you. And, and you begin to formulate in your mind what name Paul is going to list. And, and I love Paul because he probably thought just like we did. And I know that there's somebody that's reading this letter there at Philippi, as well as there's probably some here, maybe even myself, that we would say, yeah, 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 Paul, I I hear what you're saying with this whole humble thing, but you don't know the facts of the situation. And, and, And you see, the person that I have that bone to pick with or that there is that contention, I really am better. I really am right. Paul, I mean, Paul, any logical, reasonable human being would hear my side of this issue, this conflict, and and they would say, you're right. We see your point. So, So, Paul, I hear what you're saying. This is very good Christian doctrine, Paul, but I'm right. I am better than them. So look at Paul's example. You're better? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who is Jesus? Verse 6. Who, being in the form of God. You ever have someone say that to you in an argument? Who are you, God? Well, he was. It says, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be called equal with God. The first thing he tells us there is that he was God. He was in the form of God. He was God incarnate. Now, because he's God, that automatically means that there is no one better. He is the best at everything there is to be. He's the best giver, the best doer, the best. He is the best. He's always right. He never does anything wrong. He is smarter. He, in every way that you could possibly list, he is light years ahead of anyone. He is God. It also says, he thought it not robbery to be called equal with God. That is, that when Jesus, the God-man, walked upon the earth, there were a few times that he was referred to as God. We're told a couple of times in the Gospels that he was worshipped. And yet, even though he was worshipped, he did not say, don't worship me, don't worship. Worship is reserved for God alone. Because he was God, and so therefore he had the right to be worshipped. When Thomas put his hand into his side and and into the hole in his hands, Thomas dropped to his knees and he said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't say, Whoa, Thomas, I'm not really God. No, no, no. He didn't think it robbery to be called equal with God. He wasn't stealing anything, in other words, by being called God. Why? Because he was God. You read John chapter 8, and Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and he was glad. And they said, you're not even 50 years old, and you claim you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. That's what Jesus said. And he used the tetragrammaton, what God spoke to Moses when he said, tell them that my name is I am. And they knew what he was saying because it tells us in the next verse that they picked up stones to stone him. They understood with perfect clarity who he was claiming to be. He didn't think it robbery to be called. He was God. He didn't think he was stealing anything by being called God. So what did he do with that? Verse 7. It says, but he made himself of no reputation. Now think about all of the reputations that could have been attached to Jesus Christ. 
I mean, you understand a reputation. You know, all of us here have a reputation. We're all known for something. I mean, that's how we describe and identify each other if we don't know each other's last names. We say, you know, Bob, the teacher. Oh, yeah, Bob, the teacher. You know, because everybody has a... Re- Think about the reputations that could have been attached to Jesus Christ. He could have been called the healer. Jesus, the healer. Or Jesus, the teacher. Jesus, the preacher. Jesus, the king. In fact, they tried that, didn't they, on a couple of occasions. They tried to make him a king, but he wouldn't let it happen. It says that he withdrew because he knew what was in their hearts. He didn't commit themselves to He wouldn't let them attach that reputation to him. He could have been the Christ. In fact, he said, I am the Christ. It's who he was. But then he said, shh, don't tell anybody. Because it's not my intent to be of any reputation. He could have been the God-man. They could have called him the God-man. I remember I had this job, and I always brought my Bible, and I would put it in these fifth pockets, you know, in this thing, and they started calling me Books, Nikki Books, that's what they called me. Don't, please don't call me that, you know. But I started to like it. I thought, well, hey, that's pretty cool. You know, it's, it's because I carry a Bible around with me. I'm on a construction site. And so, so, you know, I start doing it. I'm like, all right, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll put this thing here. But, but listen, Jesus would not accept a reputation. He would not let them attach any reputation to him at all, except for one. And he tells us what that is here in the second half of the verse. It says that he made himself of no reputation, but he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. The only reputation that he would accept, and no one was in a hurry to give it to him, was that of a servant and that of a common man. That was it. Jesus, the Son of God, who was God, who did the works of God, would not allow them to attach a reputation. Why not? Didn't he come to save the world? Didn't he come? Why wouldn't he allow them to attach a reputation to him? Reputations bring a burden, and they bring bondage. I don't know if you know that. See, once I started carrying that Bible in my pocket, then I couldn't leave home without it. Well, now I have to maintain this reputation that I've been given. And now I have to begin to, you know, live up to the reputation that I've been given. And so now it's affecting things in the wrong way or for the wrong reasons. Because I'm, 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 I'm seeking to establish and defend a reputation. And now I'm beginning to experience a little bit of a problem within my life. Here's the problem with the reputation. Is that once a person begins to develop a reputation, whether it's good or bad, but I'm speaking in in terms of good, it automatically becomes a part of their identity. A person is given a reputation for being a good businessman or a very excellent athlete. They've obtained that reputation. Or of a great musician or an unbelievable chef. Or someone who is in excellent shape, the picture of muscular definition. You know. Or even the Bible teacher, or the Bible guy, or books, or whatever. Once a reputation begins to be attached to a person, a couple of things automatically happen. First of all, you begin to become the reputation that you have. All of a sudden, it affects the way you dress. It affects the way you talk. It affects the things that you read, the things that you do. Because you say, well, I like this reputation. A good businessman. Who wouldn't want to be a good businessman? 
And so I subscribe to Forbes magazine and I get the Wall Street Journal and, and, and I shop at, you know, Joseph Banks. And, and, you know, all of a sudden, my life begins to take the form of the reputation that I've been given. And the problem with that is that it disperses maybe anything else that God might have his plan for my life. Because now, no, I, I'm a businessman. It's my identity. It's who I am. The next thing that happens is that inwardly, I become competitive with those of like reputation. When there are other businessmen, when there are other athletes, when there are other Bible teachers, think about how bad this is. When there are other Bible teachers, now it's, who's a better Bible teacher? Who's a better businessman? Who's a better athlete? Who has bigger arms? You know. You see what, you see what begins to happen? I lose my ability to love someone because I've found my identity and my self-worth in something that I am outwardly from a worldly perspective rather than who I am in the Lord. And finally, the last thing that happens is that now that I have a reputation, and here's where it gets heavy. Are you ready? Is that now that I have a reputation, I have to maintain that level of excellence in my area of achievement in order to feel the same sense of self-worth that my reputation afforded me to begin with. And that becomes heavy. Because you cannot continually or eternally maintain what it takes to uphold an excellent reputation in whatever that reputation might be. People are like Cub Scouts. We really are. We have these vests on. Remember, you know, if you ever have kids or siblings or something in Cub Scouts, and they, they come home the first day with an empty vest, and they, they spend their whole time in Cub Scouts earning merit badges. You know, they get badges for, you know, bow and arrow and crossings. We do the same thing because here's what happens. Someone comes up to you and, and, and they, they'll just say to you, they say, wow, you are an excellent cook. And you go, yeah, I do grill a mean piece of chicken. And all of a sudden you just, you just slapped a, a merit badge on you. <laughs> excellent cook. Got a reputation, you know. And, and, and then, you know, and then, and then like a week later, someone will just say, this, man, you are a funny guy. You're funny the way you say things. Yeah, I am. And we get the next one. <laughs> Reputation. I'm a funny guy. You know, I, I can crack some jokes, you know, they're not, not like me, you know. And, and, then, and then, you know, there's a conversation at the office and, and they find out that you have a, a particular skill or something. And, oh, I can do that. You know, and, and all the, oh, you can, let's see, and you do it, and oh, wow, you, you, you're excellent, you're in good shape, and oh, yeah, I'm in good shape, and all of a sudden what happens is over a course of our life, our, our, our vests begin to fill up with different colors and various things that we are, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm great at that, oh, I'm good at this, yeah, excellent host, yeah, hospitable, you know, all these things, this is who I am, all of a sudden, all we are is a colored vest, you know what our reputation becomes, he's the colored vest guy. You know, <laughs> he's, no, no, but here's what happens. Really, here's what happens. Is that unbeknownst to you, because of all your reputations and all of your skills and gifts and everything that you are, while you're not looking, somebody slaps a merit badge in the middle of your back that you can't see that says, arrogant moron. <laughs> and that becomes your reputation. Reputations are a dangerous thing. Take the example of Jesus, the mindset of humility. He made himself of no reputation. Do you know what Jesus wanted his life to be? Do you know what his reputation was? 
The answer is in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. It was right before Jesus would go back to heaven. Listen to what Jesus prayed to his father just prior to going to the cross. It says, he lifted up his voice, his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life. That they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And here it is in verse 5. This is everything that Jesus lived for. And if he would have a reputation, this would be it. Verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. My desire, my drive, my identity, let everything that is in me be to be in your presence again with the glory I had with you from before the world was. And we've never even tasted the beginnings of what that is. And yet Jesus knew it, and so powerful and impacting was his desire to be with the Father that he would allow nothing in this earth to divert him from that one goal, that one desire to be in the presence of his Father again. May that be the merit badge that we wear. Lord, let nothing in this earth become my reputation or my desire, but let me live completely and totally for you. Well, verse 8, back in Philippians chapter 2. No reputation, but then verse 8 He humbled himself even further. It says, in being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Interesting, you know, he lived his life in absolute obedience to his father. That was his mindset. And and, and, I mean, don't forget who we're talking about. We're talking about God. We're talking about the one who created all things. And now he's in the earth and he's waiting for his commands. And he says, okay, Father, here I am. I'm in the earth. I'm here to represent you. What do you want me to do? The Lord says, the Father speaks to the Son. He says, I want you to go spend time with those children. So he does. He says, whatever you want, Father. And so he ministers to children. He says, there's a leprous man. You're going to meet a leper today. And I want you to cleanse the leper and, and, and reveal my love to the leper. And so Jesus goes to the leper in obedience to his father. What today, Father? Today you're going to choose your followers. Today I'm going to show you the 12 men that are going to be with you that will be what you leave behind. Oh, Father. Who are they? Well, there's a couple fishermen. There's a tax collector. There's a thief. There's a couple of publicans and people that aren't really liked that much. Okay, Father. Whatever it is that you would have me to do. What is it today, Father? You're going to ride on a donkey. Today's the day of your coronation, son. You're going to become the king of Israel. You're going to ride on a donkey. Your feet are going to drag on the ground. It's going to be real glorious, son. And then, son, there's one more thing for you to do. There's a cup waiting for you there. And that cup is filled with all of the sin, all of the rot, all of the transgression, all of the evil, all of the selfishness, all of the pride, 
all of the outworkings of all of that, all of the adulteries, all of the lust, all of the thefts, all of the murder. And I want you to drink that cup, son. And then I want you to take the cup, the cup of fellowship with me, the cup that is the source and satisfaction of all that you are, and I want you to give it to them. And it says, he obeyed. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The most shameful, the most humiliating death or experience that a man could experience, it says that Jesus did in obedience to his Father with the mindset of humility. Do you recognize a pattern of humility's mindset here? Go lower. And then once you get there, go lower. And then once you get there, go lower. And then once you get there, go lower. And you say, okay, that, that sounds really good, but, but where do we end up? If I take the mindset of humility and I consistently apply it to my life and I just always go lower, I always go lower, I always go lower, then where does that, where does that leave me in the end? Look at verse 9. And this is humility's outcome. It says, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know what the result of humility is? Honor. It's the great paradox of the Christian life. The way up is down. If you want to go up, go down. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 33 says, Before honor is humility. Listen, church, in humility, there is freedom and peace. You don't have to be anything. You don't have to prove anything. You are able to be what you are. You take the humble road, and the Bible says that God will exalt you. Listen, God doesn't waste life. He doesn't waste talent. He doesn't waste gifts. He doesn't waste a calling. But this is what he asks of us. He says, don't promote yourself. Wait upon me and be humble, and I will lift you up in due time. That's the way. And it's the mindset of humility that we are called to have. And now Paul applies it, what he has just taught them about pride and humility, and he now applies it to their situation here in verse 12. He says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, that is when I was with you, but now much more in my absence. He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Most of the conflicts that come within churches and between Christians are the result of people that are over-concerned with what other people are doing and not concerned enough with what God is doing in their own lives. He says, listen, God is working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. He works in you to want things, and then he works in you to do things. He is the one that's working within your life. And so what he's saying to them, very simply, is work out what God is working in. Work out your own salvation. He's not talking about the fact that you're saved. He's talking about the salvation gift, your walk with the Lord. You worry about your walk with the Lord. God's working in your life to will and to do. So you just deal with 
what God's doing in you. And don't worry about what God is doing with someone else or in someone else. Don't let that ruffle your feathers, you know. And then he says, do all things. And, ooh, this one's going to hurt. Some of you might want to plug your ears. I know I, I want to, you know. He says, do all things without murmurings. Murmuring means complaining. And disputings, that means arguing. It's funny. We sing that to our kids, don't we? You know, we do all things without complaining. You know, and argue. We, we sing these songs, but yet it's what Paul is saying to adults. He's saying, don't complain about what's going on in the church and don't argue or bring it to the level of a fight. And he says that the result of that in verse 15, he says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He says, if you do this, if you just listen to what I'm telling you, take the humble road, be of the same mind, don't frustrate the grace that God is giving to your church, it's going to cause you to shine that much brighter to a lost and dying world. The other thing that will happen, verse 16, he says, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. That is Paul saying, listen, if you let this conflict divide your church, then my ministry amongst you is for nothing. Because if you grieve the Holy Spirit through your conflicts and you cause your church to become Christless or lifeless, then what was the purpose of my being there amongst you, of taking that beating, of being bound in that prison, of God delivering me by an earthquake? Because the work of God will be all but finished if you let this thing go through. He says, I don't want my labor to be in vain. So fulfill my joy by just burying the hatchet in this thing. And then he closes the chapter with three examples of selfless servants of Christ. Just read with me from verse 17. He says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. But... I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But you know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet, I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger that he, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sor sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me.
In these closing verses, Paul gives three examples of selfless servants to a church that was filled with people that were beginning to divide over stupidity. The first example, and real quick, we're closing, was Paul himself. In those first few verses, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, listen, if I'm poured out as a drink offering because of the ministry that I performed for you, in other words, if I die here in this prison because of my ministry to plant churches, that's a joy to me. I'd be happy to die for this cause, for this call, Paul says. That's a good example, someone who's willing to die. The second example is Timothy. Timothy's example is twofold. Paul says that the mark of Timothy is that, first of all, he puts Christ's priorities above his own. In contrast to other ministers. He's not worried about himself. He's worried about the things that God wants. Jesus is first in Timothy's life. And the second thing he talks about Timothy is that his natural reaction with people is to care more for them than he does about himself. That is, when he comes into a church, he's not concerned about if things run the way he wants. I mean, Timothy's Paul's right-hand man. He knew how church was supposed to look, but he wasn't concerned about that. It didn't bother him if he came into a church and the order of the service wasn't perfect according to what he thought or how they were organized or the way that they did things because he had a bigger scope in his mind. What's God doing here? How is this church being affected by him and how are they affecting others? And how will my actions here affect the people here? And that was Timothy's mark. It was his example. And then he ends with this man Epaphroditus. And his example is that he was willing to expend himself to the point of death in order to fulfill the calling that was placed upon his life. And that's a good example of someone who's a servant of the Lord, that they don't put themselves first. That they would go even to the point of death before they would put their own needs above that of a church or a group of people. So here's the conclusion of the matter, the conclusion of chapter 2 and of Paul's exhortation towards them to unify. Here's what it is. He whispers in the ear of this church and he says, can you let the color of the carpet go? Can you let the style of music be what it is? Can you forgive the person that offended you or slighted you? or said something to you that you didn't like, or threw an attitude at you, can you forgive that person? As we close, and the musicians can come, or Brad, (laughs) our church is growing. And the Spirit is doing a work here. There's something that's special. I've been a Christian for 13 years, and I've been a part of a few churches, and, and I've never experienced... What, what, what's happening here, the, the moving of the Lord and how he's doing. And there's a lot of things that happen when a church grows and when God's spirit is, is, is moving in the midst of people. There's differing music styles amongst the people that come in. There's a blending of generations, the gray hair and the young hair, you know. And, and, and you know, there's a blending of traditions in these types of things. There's various people that are put into different positions and given different things to do that, you know, maybe we don't understand or maybe we don't agree with. There's decisions that are made about, you know, locations and decor and layout and all that kind of thing. And listen, when these things happen, 
Satan is not far away. And, and, and here's what Satan is doing. He is either nervous or he is smiling. If the church is unified and, and the presence of God is the priority and the people sincerely love one another, then that makes Satan nervous because he sees that his feathers are about to be severely ruffled. His kingdom is going to be shaken. But if Satan can look at a church that's growing and he can see, you know what, I can move in that person. And I can ignite selfish ambition in them and I can use that one's pride and I can make them notice how they were slighted or how they were put last. And, and, and I'm, boy, this is going to be fun. And Satan will just wait. He'll let the church grow. He'll let people come in. The seats will be flooded. They'll go to two or three different buildings. Things will be cooking, and then he'll begin working. He'll just begin to, did you hear what they said? Can you imagine what they're saying about you right now? They're talking about you right now, he'll whisper. And the person just seething, seething. I can't believe this is what's happening here. And, and guess what? Satan just sits back and he's, watch this, watch this, watch this. Like a little kid, you know, about to burn an anthill with a magnifying glass or something. And he doesn't care at all. I pray in Jesus' name that that doesn't happen here. I pray that we would be a church, that we would say, you know what, Lord? Your spirit is moving. You're working. The world is dark. The day is dark. You've given us light. Have your way in our midst and let us be a part of it. And let us not ever put ourselves in front of the thing that you're desiring to do. If any outward thing begins to take precedence over Jesus Christ, over his word, and over the gospel of his grace, and unconditional love that we would have towards one another, we begin to die. May God give us wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. We ask that you would help us to apply these things, to hear what you have to say to us we'd be obedient to this great grace, this great commission. Fill us this time. Fill us right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together.